Next week on Father's Day, we're going to be collecting a special offering for the children's home. Uh, the offering has been in the bulletin in previous weeks, and will be in the visitor's area. And uh, what a joy uh, to be able to send that on to Dr. Hancock. I'm so grateful uh, in the needs uh, for orphan care and foster care that we have a partner in ministry, uh, the Louisiana Baptist Children's Home. They're doing a great work, and I'm thankful that we can give to them. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, if you'd pass that to the center aisle, we'd like to collect those and we'll be praying for you this week and would invite you to open your sword to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 verses 6 through 11 will be our focus this morning. This is, I think, our 12th installment in the book of Romans as Paul is unpacking some important truths concerning the condition of humanity. And in chapters 1 through 3, he's making the case of the universal guilt of the human race and our need for redemption. And I, I found in this, um, in this section of Scripture, in this paragraph, just this basic message. I'm calling the message of the sermon this morning. Once again, there are only two ways to live. Why do I say once again? Because we find that over and over and over again in the Bible. And I think the big question of the hour for us is, uh, which way am I on? Which path am I on? What am I living for? For more than two centuries after its publication in 1678, John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress ranked just behind the King James Bible as the most popular uh, book uh, produced, and it was a prominent place in most evangelical Protestant households. Amazingly, Bunyan's work has been translated far and wide uh, to almost every known language. The story centers upon a man named Christian. And by the way, Bunyan began this work in the Bedford jail. He was imprisoned for gathering for religious services. And uh, he wrote this Pilgrim's Progress, largely autobiographical. And the story, again, centers upon a man named Christian, who is on a journey to the celestial city. And Christian encounters rough terrain. He comes to Doubting Castle. He has to deal with the slew of Dispond and other places that were treacherous. And an assortment of unsavory characters who test his allegiance and seek to derail him off the right path that leads to eternal life. In a moment of decision, Christian expresses, The hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not offend For I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, heart, let's not faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. The issue of salvation, your salvation, demands the greatest care, the greatest thought you can give to it. And the Bible is a book of urgency that presses that to our Um, a consciousness as we read the Bible. It is a call to make decisions and to surrender to the living God. It's a book of urgency pointing us to the path that leads to life. Think with me for a moment this statement of Jesus Christ right from the Sermon on the Mount. He said, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad and easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. It's easy, it's accommodating, it's wide, and it's populated. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard, however, that leads to life, and few there are who find it. In our study in the book of Romans, we come to chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 this morning, and Paul frames that there are only two ways, only two paths. Whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, we share in common a sin problem and are in need of God's redemption. And so I want to just kind of maybe look at what he's talking about here, because as Alex introduced the text, I mean... The subject matter over the last six weeks has been tough, and we're not done yet, because um, basically Paul is looking at the human race from God's perspective and is basically saying to us all, we don't look so good. And that's for a reason to draw us uh, to see the gospel for what it is, God's good news. But he mentions first and foremost that there's a wrath that we need to think about. That God has a wrath. We first read of it in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And this through unrighteousness suppresses the truth of God. This is what we all share in common as a human race. Instead of uh, responding rightly to this eternal God who has created everything and created us in his image, we suppress that truth and we don't like uh, his demands, and we craft gods that are more to our liking. And so he mentions ungodliness. If you wanted to frame that, what does that refer to? It refers to basically the first four commandments and the Ten Commandments that deal with our relationship with God. We have other gods. We make idols. We take his name in vain. We take it lightly, and we don't honor him as we should and worship him as we should. All ungodliness. Then he mentions unrighteousness of men. And this refers to commandment 5 through 10. We don't honor our parents. We don't keep a clean thought life. We don't keep our, um, our anger in check. We're prone to lift things and take things and covet things and steal things. And so we suppress the truth of the living God in his ways and we want to do it our way. We read of it again, this wrath, in, in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. That's heavy, isn't it? Storing up wrath for the day of wrath. There's a day of wrath coming. You can't read the Bible and not see that so many times. It, it's sobering. It should grab our attention Storing up wrath for yourself. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. And this wrath, the Greek word is orge, where we get orgy. What does wrath have to do with an orgy? And I think the, the, the short answer is it communicates passion. God is passionately against sin and his hatred for it. So in Romans, it mentions a wrath revealed How is it revealed? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And we see that escalate, don't we, throughout chapter 1, where it says in verse 24, God gave them over. Verse 26, God gave them over. Verse 28, God gave them over. To what? What they wanted to do. A sign of God's wrath and judgment is when he takes his hands off and lets humanity do what they want to do, which you see on display every day. In every generation, in some degree, one degree or another. 
God's wrath is revealed. God's wrath is revealed when he allows us to go our own way. Not only is it wrath revealed, but it's wrath deserved. He talks about in verse 5, the hard and impenitent heart. And why is that such an offense? To have a hard heart against God. We're warned against that. Beware of an evil, unbelieving heart, the writer of Hebrews says. Why is this so outrageous? Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Do you remember this incredible breath of fresh air in the midst of this heavy paragraph? Verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? To presume upon it, to think lightly of God's riches. Think of your life, your one life, his kind benefits that he freely gives to you, the ways he's blessed you, the provisions he's given to you. The good things he's allowed you to enjoy. Think of his patience towards you, his forbearance by withholding judgment. What does that communicate? I think of the many things we could say, it communicates opportunity to be saved, opportunity to be reconciled to the living God, and how he endures our rebellion. For God's kindness is being extended for the purpose of your repentance. So when it says that God's wrath is being stored up because of the hardness of your heart, it's not an unjust judgment. It's what we rightly deserve. Now, when you read and you think about Romans 1 through 3 for very long, this sense of hopelessness comes over us. Uh, What hope do I have? And I think that's in large part the point. Because apart from God's redeeming work through Jesus Christ, and in chapters 8 and chapters 9, we're going to look at these doctrines of election and predestination and foreknowledge that stretch our minds, which I think are key to to understanding the riches of His grace and kindness, that we would never seek them on our own, that we would run from them. But listen to this. I remember one old country preacher I used to listen to on the radio. Don't take predestination from me. Don't do it. Don't you take predestination from me. It's my only hope of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so when we look at the effects of sin, we ought to feel overwhelmed by it. But that... That's what we need in order to see the beauty of the cross. If you yawn at the cross, you have no concept of the depth of your sin. When we sing of the cross, we should sing with all of our heart, we've been redeemed by the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. It's wrath deserved. It's wrath revealed. It's wrath justly applied. James Boyce said, if life has been good to you, you only increase your guilt and build a treasure of future punishment by blowing off God's kindness. The greatest deception of all is the thought that somehow you'll have an excuse. And maybe maybe you've been clever in this world, streetwise in your ways, and you think, you know, when I stand before God, I'm going to have the excuse that's just going to get me by. I'm going to live for myself now because I've got my paperwork in my back pocket. 
That's such a great deception. I think of Romans 3.19, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. This idea of storing up wrath, which is so uncomfortable. I'd rather talk about a hundred things. But storing up wrath, this text says, is like a greedy man who stores up wealth and gold coins and places it in, in the attic above his bed, thinking that it will be safe there. And so for years, he stuffs his attic full of gold coins, and the weight exceeds the ability of the trusses to support all the gold above his bed. And so one night, while he is sleeping and clueless to his danger, his great weight of gold breaks through the ceiling of his bedroom, comes crashing down on his bed and kills him. He thought wealth is salvation, but it was death. So it is with sin, if you see that as your salvation. And it's true of any other idol, career, education, power, sex, relationships, whatever you want. One other thing I would say about wrath. Wrath will come with certainty. It will come with certainty. If the future judgment will be a, a day of peace and grace for you rather than a day of wrath and trouble for you, it must be because you're trusting Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses, if you would go with me to 1 John 2, you'll see this applied. I picture John the Apostle writing. He's got a big white beard. I don't know if he did or not, but I just imagine him. He, this was written in the last decade of the first century, and he's the only living apostle, and he's writing these letters to the churches and those that he, he, he's, he looked over and was an overseer of, of these Christians. And he writes to them, and he uses the phrase, my little children, my little children, these things I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. To know Jesus Christ is to have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Why do I need him? Because he's the only righteousness that will stand before the judgment of God. And he explains that in the next verse. He says, he is the propitiation for our sins. What a rich word propitiation is. In short, it means that his death on the cross satisfied the wrath of God in a once-for-all sin payment so that I don't have to ever bear it on myself. Because I can't. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That means you. All kinds of sinning. All types of sinners. And so we have an advocate with the Father. Wrath will come with certainty. Judgment's coming. A life to live, a death to die, a judgment to face. We're living in a dream world if it would think any other, be any other way. And I think that's important for us to think about regularly because life, as one preacher said, is tissue paper thin. You never know what will change your world, what a call or a text or knock on your door will bring. Life is tissue paper thin. We only have today. This is, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is the day of salvation. And the Bible gives no hope 
of some kind of second chance after one departs this world. The call to believe is now. The call to repent is now. Wrath will come with certainty. Now, let's move on in Paul's um, treatment here. The second observation, if you're following along in the uncertain, I encourage you to do, do that. There are only two ways, and they are completely different. There are only two ways, and they're completely different. Verses 7 through 10, and 7 and 10 kind of serve as a bookend as he talks about the righteous and the unrighteous. Verse 7 Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. And then verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. And then in between that, verses 8 and 9, he deals with the unrighteous who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth. So there are two principles of God's judgment. How am I to understand the judgment of God? Two truths that emerge from this, this text. According that God's judgment is according to truth, which can be a frustrating thing in this world, can it? How often we see truth slain in the streets, injustice done on so many fronts, not from God's perspective. As we read in Scripture that God's judgment is according to, to the truth, the books will be opened. He takes impeccable records. The books will be opened. It will, it'll be based on the truth. Secondly, it would be, it's according to our works. Now, you can understand why this would be um, an opportunity to really make a, a serious the, a theological error. If God's judgment's based on our works, then that means he's going to take all my good works and all my bad works, and the, the good hopefully will outweigh the bad. That's not what, what he's talking about here. He's not talking about how we are made righteous before God. He's talking about the way the judgment works. Judgment according to works, rendering according to deeds. You don't find any passage that you will be judged by your faith. So God's not going to say on the judgment, your faith was just too puny. It's No, that's not going to work. That's, that's not the criteria. The criteria is our works. Hang with me here. If you check out now, you could, you know, get it all wrong. I don't want you to do that. I want to labor th- belabor this for a moment. So in verses 7 through 10, revelation of God's righteous judgment, judgment according to works, what it looks like. So genuine saving faith has fruit, doesn't it? It has fruit. Genuine saving faith bears fruit. And we are told in Ephesians 2, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we were saved for good works. We were created for good works in Jesus Christ. The whole book of James really you know, holds this point up for us that faith without works is what? Dead. Saving faith, genuine faith, the faith that redeems, faith that is placed on Jesus Christ, bears fruit. It shows love and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness, self-control. There's a joy with it. So what's Paul describing? He's describing principles of judgment, the outcome of God's righteous judgment, 
not salvation by doing good things. We don't believe that for a minute, that someone is saved by their good works. The weight of Scripture shows that. Even back in Genesis, in Genesis 15, it says, Abram believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. How was Abraham saved? By faith. How was anybody in the Old Testament saved? By faith, trusting in God to provide what only he could do to bring redemption to their life. Notice in chapter 1, verse 5 of Romans, Paul references here the obedience of faith. There's an obedience that comes out of true saving faith in Jesus Christ. I think one of the most helpful exercises we can have as believers is to obey 2 Corinthians 13, 5, which says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Go back in your life and look at when you think that you might have come to faith in Christ and ask the question, do I see any fruit in my life? Is there any obedience in my life? That's where assurance comes from. I have assurance because, yes, my life did change. I've had slips and I've fallen and I've struggled. But nevertheless, Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life, and I'm pressing on to his glory. I see fruit in my life. And to see how he brings, sometimes sanctification is just so painfully slow. But to see, you know, I used to respond this way when that happened, but now I, the Lord's changing me. I'm learning things. I'm showing things that are, give evidence of my salvation The righteous shall live by faith, and there's an obedience of faith. So we're not saved by good works. Brian Borgman put it this way, we're justified by faith. We're declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, and faith alone in Him. But our faith is judged by works and works alone. So anyone claiming, you know, I have faith, but there's no obedience in your life, you have no biblical claim for assurance of your salvation. Next, he, he mentions Scripture presents two paths consistently. Scripture presents two paths consistently. Tracking the message of redemption from, from the beginning of the Bible, God's redemption in this world, when sin came, the promise of a Messiah came. That from the seed of of a woman, a Savior would be born. And the desperate cry of God's people went up, How long, O Lord? How long? And in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. He came to His own, and His own received Him not, even though He was the great I Am and the fulfillment of all God's promises. Jesus performed many signs, accomplished, accomplished many miracles, taught history-altering truths. Among those truths was the doctrine of two paths. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said there are two paths, two gates, two ways, and only two. There's two kinds of fruit, Jesus taught. There's good fruit, and there's bad fruit. He said there's a wise man, there's a wise way and a foolish way. The wise man builds his life or house on the rock. The foolish man does what? Builds on the sand. And it's going to fall. And great is the fall. Even going back to the Old Testament, 
Moses in Deuteronomy. I love this section in Deuteronomy where he has the curses of Mount Ebal and the blessings of Mount Gerizim. And they're kind of in an antiphonal offering here. Uh, we will be cursed if we disobey the word of the, the Lord. And we will be blessed if we follow in his ways. Two ways. Two paths. And then Psalm 1. It's worth a look. Keep your finger here for just a moment and get there as quickly as you can. Present Bibles. Start. So, Psalm 1. It um, breaks in half right down the middle. Verses 1 through 3, the godly life. Verses 4 through 6, the ungodly life. It says in verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer. But his delight is in what? The law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates sometimes. No, he's thinking about it all the time, actually. It's operative in his thinking. It's, it, it helps him to, to think through the issues of life. What does God say about this? How do, how do I bring God's wisdom to bear on this? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. And that word meditate, I'm always reminded of that rural countryside in Mississippi where those Holstein cows would just sit. We'd look out the back window of our parsonage and see them just sit there chewing their cud all day long. They're just burping it up and chewing it all day long. That's the picture of thinking about what God has said and the promises of God and how to bring God's truth to be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And what, what does such a life look like? Well, verse 3 is a wonderful effort to communicate that. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. It doesn't mean he's bulletproof. It doesn't mean he doesn't make mistakes. But God's hand is on his life. The banner over his life is, is, is God's love. But notice how the psalmist pivots here. In verse 4, the wicked are not so. What's this psalm saying? There are two ways. The wicked are not so. Listen to this. But are like chaff that the wind drives away. And that chaff was when they would harvest barley or wheat or whatever. And they would bring the, the grain to the a threshing floor, and they would take the winnowing fork and put it into the pile of grain and, and, and throw it up into the air, and the breeze would blow the chaff, the insignificant part of the grain would blow it away. The psalm writer says, the wicked are described like that. They're here for a moment. They're like a, a flourishing tree, but then you look, and they're gone, like chaff blown away in the wind. Therefore, the wicked, and by the way, the wicked describes... Uh, unbelieving, unbelieving, set against God's ways, God's purposes, God's truth. And sometimes that could look like somebody who has a perfectly upstanding life. Man, look at, look at where they live. Look at what they drive. Look at where they work. The wicked here are not just the Hitlers and the serial killers. This is describing those who reject God's way. And that could come an incredible veneer. The wicked are not so like the chaff 
Therefore, verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will what? Get a little less piece of the pie? No, they don't get any pie. They perish. That's sobering. I want you to know, with as much intensity as I can offer to you, that this is the message of the Bible. There's not a third way. Which makes you incredibly unpopular in the culture at large. Which has many ways to what you think God might want to be. So which path are you on? What path are you on? He goes on to say, the path of the righteous is filled with those who seek after something. Look at verse 7. To those who, by patience and well-doing... Seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. And so this is uh, tied back to verse 6 to each that God is going to give on the judgment day to those who are seeking. Seeking. Who are the seekers? I remember early in my ministry there was a seeker-sensitive movement where there was this whole drive in the evangelical church to really... um, Structure your worship services to, to lost people, basically. You know, those who are seeking. Which is really puts you in a theological corner because the Bible says there's none who seeks God, no, not one. So why are we scheduling and ordering our worship services uh, for people who aren't even seeking Him when it's supposed to be a seeker service? The real seeker is the believer. And so... Seekers are those who have been justified. Believers are seekers striving and aiming. This is a word of effort. There's energy in it. There's diligence. They're seeking first the kingdom of God. They're seeking things that are above where Christ is. Colossians 3. They're seeking peace and pursuing it. 1 Peter 3. So they're seeking what? Glory. Their own glory? No, the glory of God. Do you remember Moses in Exodus 33 where he says, Lord, show me your glory. What did God say to him? No, no, nobody can see my glory and live. The word glory in, in, in Hebrew is kabod, which means heavy. Show me your heaviness, O God. But that is the destiny of every true believer. Glory is going to come. We know by faith. And this is a purifying thing. Seeking the glory to come. It also is uh, the believer, the righteous are seeking honor. Look here in the text. Honor. Paul writing in a shame, honor, culture. Two important words that really define uh, the worldview uh, of Paul and others. Uh, Honor was the highest and shame was the worst. Many took their life rather than to live in disgrace and bring honor to their, dishonor to their family. Paul said in chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of what? The gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So to be honored by God is to be publicly acknowledged by God on the last day. That's the only honor we should long for. To be honored by God is to be publicly acknowledged by God on that last day, which will be the most public event in which to be acknowledged. And what does this honor sound like? 
I think it sounds something like, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what true believers seek after, the pleasure of our Heavenly Father. He mentions immortality, which means um, never to die. This brings to the forefront our resurrection hope. Our resurrection hope. Paul said in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, having fellowship with his sufferings. And then in verse 11, he says that I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. The full-orbed hope of every Christian is not just that our spirit goes to be with the Lord, but on that day when he returns, we will receive a resurrection body by which to live all of eternity with him. That's our hope. It's hard to get excited about being a spirit. The picture is that we will have a body. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I can't tell you how many times it's been a number now of just standing right here and looking down into the casket of a, uh, someone who's died. What happens? What do we seek after? Well, certainly we seek the Lord and His promises, but our, our hope is that for the believer, the soul, the spirit goes to be with the Lord, but there's coming a resurrection day when the body and the soul and the spirit will be united to know fully. God's redemption. And so he mentions eternal life. We're seeking eternal life. That is a gift from God, by the way. Eternal life is a gift from God. He will give eternal life. What does that mean? Well, eternal life really is a present possession. Maybe you're thinking, well, eternal life will begin when I die. No, it it really is a present possession now. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that gift has been given to you by God. It's the greatest gift in the universe. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a present possession. We're to walk in it. It's our hope. It also refers to a future destiny, two destinies as we think about eternity, eternal life, and eternal death, there are only two. Life with Him forever. Future, my future will be sight because of Jesus Christ. Glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's what he says in verse 10. No no partiality with God, Jew and Greek, both is true. Notice he mentions peace in verse 10. And peace for everyone who does good. One of the joys of salvation is it communicates that when I come to faith in Jesus Christ, I'm no longer at war with God. In Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come to know God and we're reconciled with Him, His peace pours out to where He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Then He moves to the path of the unrighteous, which is filled with those who seek 
not glory, not honor or immortality, immortality, but they seek themselves. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will, there will be wrath and fury. They're self-seeking. This is self-ambition off the, off the rails. We see it often with class envy, what they do, they do wholly for themselves. Life is driven by a passion of their agenda. And if that gets out of order in any way, you know about it, no uncertain terms. They do not obey the truth, the text says. Truth calls us to turn from ourselves. One of the calls of the gospel is to deny ourselves daily. So they reject the truth. Not going to have, have Jesus rule over me because I want to do what I want to do. And they think rejecting the truth is part of their freedom. It's their bondage. And what comes is wrath and indignation. It's hard to tone down this in any way, isn't it? Self-seeking bravado. I'm always reminded of William Ernest Henley, who was an influential poet and critic and an editor in the late 1800s. His life was marked by sorrow and struggle his greatest battle was with tuberculosis, which eventually took his life at the age of 53. And Henley's best known for his 1875 poem, Invictus, which I remember reading for the first time in a college dorm room. One of my friends had a large poster on his dorm wall that proclaimed Hen Henley's humanistic creed, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit, from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. That's the unrighteous. My head may be bloody, but I'm unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. In other words, if William Ernest Henley was sitting right there listening to this message with folded arms saying, I'm unafraid. You talk about wrath all you want. It's not going to change my life. And then he closes with this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishment of the scroll Hey, look, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. That's insanity. Who could ever say with a right mind at 35,000 feet in an airplane, I'm the master of my fate and the captain of my soul? It's crazy. And yet that's the unbelieving world with arms folded. You could talk about a charged scroll. You could talk about future judgment. You could talk about payday someday. Oh no, I'm in charge of my life. That is until tuberculosis kills you at the age of 53. Or what other malady may come in this world. Henley's bravado receives cheers for those championing the human spirit. But they're the words of a fool. And so... They're disobedient to the truth. They pursue unrighteousness. Wrath and fury await them, regardless of what exterior they may put on. 
God shows no partiality, he says in verse 11. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, the same is true. So let me close in rapid fire. Maybe you're thinking, okay, I'm open to this. I, I used to be someone like Henley, but now I'm, I'm open to entertain what's at stake here. And if there's only two paths and you're willing to acknowledge that today, there, if there's only two, the, the question is, which one am I on, right? If there are only two paths, which one am I on? How do I get on the right path? And I think that can be answered in several ways. First, admit that without Jesus Christ, you're on the wrong path. Without Jesus Christ, as the Lord of your life, as the Savior of your life, the one you look to, who speaks to us through his word and has a call on us through the gospel, admit that without him, you're on the wrong path. Secondly, understand that the path is fixed in its destination. You don't get to play around with some GPS to go some other place. There are two destinations and they're fixed. Thirdly, turn now as a rejection of the path you're on. If you're on the wrong path, turn now. That's called repentance. It's chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's turning in attitude and in direction of life. And then, fourthly, I would say, come by faith to Christ. Acknowledging that, that all that is said about him in Scripture is true. And to trust him yourself personally. And then finally, come join us as we seek to follow him in obedience all the days of our life. John Bunyan wrote, God's grace is the most incredible and insurmountable truth ever to be revealed to the human heart, which is why God has given us his Holy Spirit to superintend the process of more fully revealing the majesty of the work done on our behalf by our Savior. He teaches us to cling to And then enables us to adore with the faith he so graciously supplies the mercy of God. This mercy has its cause and effect in the work of Jesus on the cross. And it's to there, to that place, to Calvary's Hill, that I point us now. Let's bow together in prayer. As we come to the close of this service this morning, it is a time to surrender, a time to Respond in faith. We've looked at the phrase Paul uses in Romans called the obedience of faith. What is it that God is leading you to do today? What path are you on? What path are you on? What way are you following? And the urgency of the matter today to get on the path that God has called us to through Christ Jesus. May this fuel evangelism among us, the urgency of eternity, the spiritual state of many without Christ, oh yeah, it it will carry opposition, but may we say with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. 
Father in heaven, I pray in these closing moments that you would do an eternal work in each of us, that you would strengthen the things that are there, that you would bring to saving faith those who need to be right with you, and through the free will offer the gospel right now, that they would turn to you. Lead us in the closing moments of this service to give our best to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.